Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. This is Lori LeBay, and I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks. Before we get started with our fascinating conversation this afternoon with Loretta, I am going to just tell you a little bit about Alzheimer Speaks because we're always getting new listeners. Um, so basically, who we are is we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care Um, culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we believe that the only way that we can really have an impact is to join forces and share knowledge and have everyday conversations about life with dementia like we're going to today. Um, We have seen how much fun it is to help people um, remove the stigmas and the myths of memory loss, and help people continue to live with purpose. At our core, Alzheimer Speaks believes collaboratively is really the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. And I know it's working because of all of your clicks and shares and likes of our resources. When you share with your Twitter tribe, your Facebook friends, your Pinterest peeps, your LinkedIn colleagues, um, anything from our blog to the radio show to our Dementia Chats webinars or our video interviews on conscious caring resources or even a page off our website, you are pushing information out to people who might not be ready to talk about this disease yet. And the more information we have available to people, the easier it's going to be for them to reach out and grab it. So I really hope that you can you continue to push our information out because that's why we started, is just to raise everyone's voice and give them more um, more resources and more tools uh, to deal with this disease. And because of all your likes and clicks and shares, we were recognized as the number one online influencer, according to Share Care and Dr. Oz. And again, that would not have happened without all of you. So thank you for taking those few moments to make a, a big, big impact there. Um, as you're listening today, you might be thinking, hey, I got a story to tell too. Well, then reach out to me. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. That's kind of our mothership. And there's a big contact button there. And um, go ahead and uh, shoot me an email and tell me your story because we interview people that are living with dementia um, and, and have been diagnosed. We talk to families and friends and advocates, researchers, authors, movie producers, um, you know, any anything and anybody who's got a service product uh, tool or story to tell, we want to hear it because, you know, everybody needs different things at different times. So we would love, absolutely love to, uh, to talk with you. Um, today, we are lucky enough to have Loretta uh, Woodward-Venny with us, and she is the author of a book called Being My Mom's Mom, and I think that there's a lot of listeners out there that are going to be able to relate to this book. Um, she wrote the book to become really an advocate for her mom and to help reduce the stigma associated with the disease and to help Fight and Find a Cure. So welcome, Loretta. So happy to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much, Lori. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, it's, uh, I, I can't wait to hear your story because, uh, as, you, as you probably know, I am uh, a daughter of a mother who had dementia for 30 years. So I, I think we're going to have a lot of things in common, and so it's, that's always fun, um, you know, for, for me personally. Um, but I, I just love hearing other people's stories, because I think stories are so powerful. And they um, allow people to be able to relate on an everyday, realistic fashion of, of how life changes, you know, and, you know, Hmm. the, the grief, the sadness, the joys and the, 
the um, things that we've championed, you know, they're all part of life. And uh, it's just fun to, to fun to hear. So why don't you tell us first, um, why did you choose the title you chose, Being My Mom's Mom? Yeah, that's such a, a great part of our story. I mean, you know, dementia, as you know, you know, really changes individuals. And sometimes, you know, very subtly, but then other times, you know, kind of a stark difference. And I don't think my mom had ever been to a McDonald's prior to her diagnosis. I'm not <laughs> kidding. And so it's all of a sudden become her favorite restaurant, not just to get something to eat, but sort of to hang out too, because we'll go and we'll have something small and then seemingly sit there for hours. But one of the times we were in the line at McDonald's and she, when it was our turn, she asked the cashier, um, you know, she said, I want an apple pie. And the cashier looks at me, you know, kind of to see, I guess, if it's okay, because that's all she ordered. And I said, um, you can have an apple pie, but you have to get something else, you know, for lunch first. And the cashier burst out laughing. And my mother looked at the cashier and said, I used to be her mom, and now she's mine. And so that, <laughs> and that's the title. And I said, I used to always joke with her. I said, one day. I'm going to write a book about you. And she said, who would want to read a book about me? But as it turned out, quite a few people. So that's how the title you know, came about, because she was very aware that we absolutely were switching roles. So I, you know, that conversation was just priceless. Oh, I, I love that story. I know some people say, you know, you know, you shouldn't be somebody's mom or somebody's dad, but roles do switch, and everybody's aware of it. And it's not... You know, you're not doing it in a derogatory sense. It's just totally out of love and unconditional love. You know that we that we switch these roles, and uh, and it's a it's a beautiful thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know when that happens. Um, I, I love that your mom was totally aware of that, and I can just see my mom saying something like that too. Um, she used to introduce me as, and this is my mother, and she takes such good care of me. And, oh, that's awesome. And yeah. that just melted my heart. You know, it, it frustrated my brothers, you know, when she would say something like that. But to me, it just melted my heart because it wasn't about having to be who I always was in her eyes or to get the words right. But the 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 meaning of being somebody's mom, that's a huge responsibility. And, really, and scary. Very yeah, scary sometimes. Yeah, yeah, because it's a whole new whole new journey. Can you tell us what has changed with your mom since the book was published in 2013? Because, um, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the book itself. Sure, absolutely. The, I think some of the, the greatest uh, changes are uh, also the, the most heartbreaking. One of the things that I say about the book is that it's, you know, heartbreaking and hopeful. So one of the heartbreaking things, of course, is the first time that your parent doesn't remember who you are. And so for us, it was January of 2014, so you know, a couple of years ago, on my 55th birthday. And my mom lives in a very small group home with like um, four other residents, and everyone has uh, dementia of some sort except one um, gentleman. And uh, they do everything together as a group. They all sit around, they have all the meals together. And so whenever it's someone's birthday, you know, of course, they have cake and ice cream. So my daughter, who's a fabulous baker, had made this um, great cake for my birthday. And so, you know, took it over to the group home. So, you know, after dinner, we're going to have the cake and, and ice cream. And right away, I could see my mom was kind of out of sorts. Um, she said, oh, hi, like she always did when, you know, I came in. Clearly, she recognizes my face. But I kind of got a sense that she wasn't really sure who I was. So um, one of the residents played the harmonica. It's, you know, he could play happy birthday on the harmonica. So he's playing happy birthday. And everybody's singing and clapping. And then all of a sudden my mom got really upset. Whose birthday is it? What's happening? I don't know what's happening. She got really, you know, aggravated and, um, and ended up, you know, knocking her piece of cake on the floor, which is very unusual. My mother lives for desserts. So it was just so, you know, and she started to cry. It was, oh, my God, one of the worst days of my life. So the guy stopped playing the harmonica, and, you know, people weren't really sure what to do. But um, it was so sad. So I just put my arms around her, and I said, it's okay. You know, it's okay. And and so she says, I just don't understand. And I said, well, that's okay. We can have cake another day. And she said, okay. So she just started eating her dinner, you know, which she had pushed to the side. And we just kind of moved on. So I quickly gathered up the, the stuff and, and left and, of course, got to my car and cried and cried and cried. <laughs> 
<laughs> it really was one of the worst days. I hadn't ever seen my mom that frustrated. So it was, um, you know, probably one of the, you know, the days you'll never forget for sure. Yeah, and, and it's something so simple, you know. Mm-hmm. You just think, how can that rattle their cage so deep? But, you know, it does. Right. And, you know, when they're rattled, we're rattled. And Right, and, that's, and birthdays were such a huge thing in, um, you know, our lives. And, you know, she, she raised us pretty much as a single parent. But, you know, no matter how mon- money was tight or whatever the circumstances were, there was a birthday celebration. And, you know, always, you know, a present. And just, you know, she really went out of her way to do that. So that was striking for me that birthdays were probably one of the first things that um, she forgot. So... Uh, other people, you know, I try to stop other people sometimes from saying, well, you know who that is because clearly she doesn't and it's okay that she doesn't. So in the beginning, like maybe the end of 2014, the beginning of 2015, she just started to call me other relatives' names. And I just made it a point to be whoever that was that day. And some of the relatives, I didn't know. So I had to ask uh, the keeper of all information in our family, our Franny, Mm-hmm. who um, then died like that next year. But before that, you know, she could always tell me who the relative was I was supposed to be that day. And that was, you know, great history to know. So um, I just started to, you know, respond to those names. So now for the last, let's say, six, eight months, my name is, all one word, very nice person. Because if somebody, someone, you know, we're out in public and somebody says, oh, who's this very <laughs> you're a good lady with you? Oh, well, she's a very nice person. It's so all one word. It's like the coolest thing. And I'm okay with that. People say, oh, you know, that must be so crushing. Well, I'm, A, I guess, used to it now. But also, you know, it could be worse. I have so many friends whose, you know, the, the behavior in their parent or, you know, their sibling or you know, changes so dramatically and sometimes becomes, you know, um, really different from how they were become some of them become really mean and so some of them get called very bad names by their parent you know cursing and cursing or whatever and so um i'm happy that she's chosen a good title for me so if that's what we have you know i try to you know go with that so i just smile you know when she says that and you know her eyes just light up so that's her new name for me and you know it's okay Oh, that's good. That's, I think that's one of the uh, toughest things for families is, is when the name changes or when the name just slips away and they don't know and they think their relationship is over, and we're so right. we're so much more than a name. You know, we just yeah. we're so much more than a name. And um, that's correct. Know, most of our. It's the best, you know, it's really the best thing because the one thing we do have, you know, everybody, you know, when I give you know, presentations, I always talk about the, I have one connection left with my mother. Mm-hmm. And that is the you know, playing around with little Lego bricks. And I think I'm a certified Lego instructor. Everybody thinks that's funny. And so, like, oh, are you kidding? Like, no, what a cool job. It's just one of the things I do. But I really, you know, pursued it and got this little certification in one of the things I love to do, primarily because it is the only connection I still have with my mom. So, you know, you know how they have that blank stare. Mm -hmm. And when you get the Legos out, I mean, her eyes light up and she reaches for them. And she likes the little ones. And I know a lot of um, senior centers use the bigger uh, Lego bricks called Duplos. Mm -hmm. My mom doesn't like those. She remembers the little ones. And she just starts clicking things together. And then she'll say... I'm building a house so I can go home. I was like, okay. <laughs> That's her favorite thing. <laughs> and then there's a little, I put a little Lego person in, because, you know, there's, there, I have this set that has doors and windows because mm-hmm. she likes building a house so much. Okay, go for it. And so she always opens the door and looks to see if the person is still in there. And she says, I'm still in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the best thing ever. And so those, you know, you can tell she is still in there. And so the name I'd much rather have, you know, those times when, you know, she's really alert and, you know, making things. And so the name just kind of goes out the window because we still have that. Yeah. And, and that's important. And so and I think the other thing is, you know, she's starting to say a lot less words, which is also, you know, obviously very, you know, not concerning so much. But, you know, you see her slowly you know, disappearing. But on the plus side, so because she's saying fewer words, her greatest relationship right now is with my almost five-year-old. She'll be five years old in, in like eight weeks. And uh, with my granddaughter. And they have this 
really cool bond. And I love hearing every people's stories about that, you know, the dementia patient and then some very young child who has this, you know, this really important relationship with them. And that's, you know, where my mother is now. So she's her favorite person at the moment. So that's actually really cool. And they play together and do all this stuff. And so that's great. You know, one of the things I, I saw with my mom, and it sounds like, and I don't know if you, if this is new for you, but for my mom, you know, I didn't see her play as much, you know, as an adult. And when she got this disease, I mean, she was playful, but there's a difference, um, you know, when she's just so into it and so concentrated and so authentic. And then it allowed me to play and not take things so seriously. Did you did you go through that or were you guys always really playful per se? No, you know, I think I always was. I never really outgrew the Lego thing. And some of the things I teach, I do a lot of management and leadership. And some of the things that I have to do and how I have to train other people, things to do. Some of those things can be really boring. So I've always tried to bring play into, you know, what I do. That's how I ended up doing this. And the thing I'm certified in is something called Lego Serious Play Mm -hmm. for all you serious people out there. So it's, it's kind of funny. So my mom... You know, she, I guess, just played with me when we were younger just because, you know, that's what you did. But growing, you know, as she got to be an adult, you know, we never did, you know, things like that. She wasn't even much on, you know, I'm I'm a big Scrabble player and things like that. And so we didn't do that as much, you know, as we got to So this is, this is definitely new for her, going and, you know, doing the playing and the coloring. And, and those, these are some really special times for us being able to, to do that. Yeah, because, you know, my mom was really playful when I was younger, but then I think, you know, you just get more serious and then you just kind of do the adult things. And <laughs> and to me, it, this part of the disease was such a gift to see to be able to see her kind of childlike was really very fun because it was so authentic and so innocent and so joyful. And um is we have to, I think, really focus on the joy. One of the coolest things we started doing in 2014 was we had a, a Easter egg hunt for you know my granddaughter, and of course I wanted to bring my mom. And so my mother, you know, fussed all the way in the car. I don't know what Easter is. I don't want to do eggs. What's an egg? And I mean, she just went. I want to go back to my place. And I, did, I almost turned around and took her back, but I didn't. And when we got here to the you know yard and all the eggs, my daughter had put all the eggs out. And so um, my granddaughter says, oh, I see one. So she runs with her basket, you know, and she picks up the egg. And then my mother sees one. So my mother has her little basket, too. So she runs in the other direction. <laughs> then they just start running all over the yard. And my mother can really run. She's <laughs> 86. At the time, she's, you know, she'll be 88 in, in February. So they are running, you know, at, at breakneck speed through the yard, you know, getting all the stuff. But what was so cool was at the end, I... Uh, granddaughter wanted to make sure that she and my mom had an equal amount of mm-hmm. eggs. And uh-huh. so and so they were, you know, she was sharing. So cool. It was awesome. Oh, that is very was, neat. We've done it every year since then. Got some amazing pictures of the two of them together, searching and laughing. and Oh, just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And usually my daughter and I cry all through the whole thing. <laughs> because it's, it's the coolest thing. They hold hands sometimes. And then it was really cold for Easter this year, so we had to do it inside. And my daughter had put some up, even on some of the beds and, like, the desk. And so my, my granddaughter would get up there, and then, you know, my mother said, do you see it? And then she would get one. It was just so funny, you know, just watching them, you know, crawl around and do things. So, yeah, it's um, there are some, if you want to call it, a, a blessings to it, because I think you see aspects of them, as you say, that you hadn't seen in years. Mm-hmm. And so um, I just try to take the beauty with it, with the rest of it. Okay. Well, that's great. Now, I know that you're involved with Us Against Alzheimer's. Can you tell people I- a little bit about that and how you got involved and what you're up to with them? Sure. Um, I got involved in 2013, probably right before the um, the book came out, and you know it got my attention. I had met someone at um, a support group I had gone to, and they were talking about this advocacy group, and I hadn't really done a lot, sorry to say, I've done a lot of advocacy much in the past. My sister died of MS, so I had done a lot of um, fundraising and uh, the MS marathons, I had I'd done eight of those, but I hadn't, you know, gone beyond that to really 
um, you know, lobby and do other things for you know, to raise funds and, and those kinds of things. So when the person mentioned it, I was against Alzheimer's, all one word. Okay, great. So I go home and I, you know, look into it. And the first two things that got my attention was, you know, you know, kind of their mission is, is part of, you know, it's an engaged and enraged group of people. I'm like, hey, now that's right up my alley. And so I, uh, because, the, you know, this disease is so frustrating. So I, you know, got on and you know, clicked around and just all the resources that were available and, you know, just all the advocacy, all the information about, you know, potential you know, drug trials and things really was um, fascinating and encouraging for me. So um, I also had, you can link from that that there is a Us Against Alzheimer's Facebook community. So I became really active in that. And then right around and just a few months after that, um, they asked me to become one of the moderators of the group. And so the goal of the, the moderators is really to, um, you know, just participate in the discussions, it's particularly when people are asking for help. Hey, does anyone know? you know, where I can go and, you know, I'm, we're at our wits end having mom at home and how can I get her into a final facility and then, you, you know, you share resources and other people will share too. It's not just the moderator sharing, that's for sure. And we're, what, what I love about it is that we're all over the, um, you know, the world really. We have, we have folks in the U.K. and, you know, Australia and Canada and, you know, so somebody's always on no matter what time it is. So if mom or dad's not sleeping and, you know, you're kind of at your wit's end. You can, you know, just say help, or, you know, online, and somebody's always there to give you a virtual hug and things like that. So I love the Facebook aspect of it. And then the bigger part, of course, of Us, us Against Alzheimer's is really, is really the ag- advocacy for awareness and for to find a cure and, you know, all of those things. And so um, they have a uh, Us Against Alzheimer's Summit each year in September, and it's always in Washington, D.C. for a very specific reason, and that reason is part of the summit includes going to Capitol Hill and lobbying members of Congress to vote for particular bills that focus on um, finding a cure. And uh, this year, one of the focuses was um, pushing a bill to give you know, funds for caregivers. You know, we, have, we spend millions and millions of dollars in um, you know, unpaid caregiver time taking care of loved ones. And so... Uh, one of the bills is going to address um, being able to pay you know, caregivers and, and things like that. And so you go to very specific, either in your home state or somewhere close to where you live, and then you go to those congressmen, and, and you simply ask. And I had never really asked for anything, so it was really fulfilling to ask, will you vote for these one or two things, whatever it is? And it's joyous when they say yes right away, as opposed to, well, let us read into it more. They ask a lot of questions and things like that. So it is, um, it's a powerful group. And the the um, commitment of uh, Tricia and George Vandenberg, who, um, you know, founded the organization, just the commitment of them and everybody who belongs and all the people who attend the summit and work year-round to, um, you know, find a cure for this disease. It is mind-blowing and life-changing when you actually attend the summit. So I've, I've attended two, and I was actually very lucky this year to be on a panel where we talked about um, what it's like being a caregiver for um, your loved one, and it was um, just an amazing experience. So I, I love this group, and it really has changed my life because it, um, it it certainly shows you're not alone. As you said, you love to hear other people's stories. So it's just two days of listening to folks, sharing you know your tips that they might not know. I talk a lot about apps on your phone. People are like, oh, she's got apps, mm-hmm. <laughs> the apps that help with dementia. So whatever you can pass on to people is important. And so it, it's been a, a true gift being part of the organization, just absolutely a gift. Yeah, they, they do just tremendous work. And um, can you highlight for people who don't know just some of the work groups, working groups that they have with us against Alzheimer's? There's the... Um, the Out of the Shadows, um, which is a dinner, uh, probably one of the biggest fundraisers that they have, um, which occurs during the summit. And, you know, it's they, have, they always have a keynote speaker, and this year's speaker was Laura Bush, and she was interviewed by Diane Ream. And then all the other first ladies uh, appeared as well by videotape, talking about the importance of finding the cure and that kind of thing. And the, the dinner um, raised, I believe, somewhere around $800,000. I mean, it was a tremendous 
um, night. So that's one of the biggest things. And then there's the, the thing they're called um, the demand, demand action to stop Alzheimer's by 2020. And, you know, one of the goals of President Obama was to find a cure by 2025. And this group wanted to advocate for um, – you know, earlier than that, you know, let's let's cut that off by shorten that by five years, and so um, you know, did a lot of work into doing that. I think one of the greatest focuses for uh, the group itself is just you know promoting you know all these clinical trials, and then there are several that people can get involved in, and then the biggest push and focus for this year's summit was uh, what they call the A list, and it's a um, uh, I guess like a net, almost a network would be a, a great word. It, it promotes, um, you know, trials and research, and then it, it really gives people a ton of resources. It's called like a toolkit where folks can go and, um, you know, get support. And then one of the, the greatest uh, pieces of the, the A-list is that it also exposes you to, um, even if you're not participating in a trial, like I can go on and, and play some of these brain games and, you know, it appears in my phone every morning and you can, um, it, it sort of tracks you, see, you know, how you are now and then, you know, just follow you for the you know upcoming years and see how, you know, you change and that kind of thing. So just everything that is, um, you know, out there about Alzheimer's, whether it's, you know, research on the various drugs, where they are in the process. And then there, there are some, um, race-based, you know, trials as well. You know, there's there's some that focus on African Americans, some on uh, the Latino community, and so um, all of those groups, you know, push individuals toward participating in the trial since you know everyone culturally responds to the the different trials differently. So you know, we need as many people as possible to um, register. So you have the this thing, the part of that A list is called the Brain Health Registry, and so. You know, just trying to do, um, you know, cover every single area. And I think Us Against Alzheimer's really um, has it covered both on the fundraising and but also on, you know, all the medical, you know, ends as well. So having the toolkits of where to look and also know, you know, what where are the trials that we can go to and participate in. Especially, you know, there's there are a lot of people out there who want to know if they're, you know, at risk for getting it. You know, some people want to know, some people don't. But it's, uh, you know, all of those resources are right there in, in, in within this group without having to go, you know, outside and, and look at other areas. We all know that there, there are lots of things out there. But what I love about being part of Us Against Alzheimer's is the fact that there are so many, you know, elements to it and so much information to go to in all one place. And that's one of the main things that I, I love about it. Well, and they do a nice job. Um, I, I love getting their newsletter every day with the updates, with research. Yeah. They also have different network groups. So they have the clergy and the women and the researchers and the Latinos and the African-Americans. And, um, and, yeah. they, and, I, you know, and I love that because, you, you know, just because you belong to one, you know, doesn't, you know, leave you out of another. And I've done a lot of stuff with the women against Alzheimer's. I think that was one of the first things I attended was one of the women against Alzheimer's. And I was just blown away by the women in the room. It was, wow, uh, just unbelievable, you know, the talent. And so over the last couple of years, you know, I've attended quite a few. of them. And then I um, got the book, The Seasons of Caring, that was uh, put together by the uh, clergy against Alzheimer's. Just, I mean, fabulous. It's a, yeah, fabulous. it really is a great book, great book. It really is. And just having, um, I do a lot of work with, support groups both you know here in the Washington DC area where I live but you know other places where I go as well and you know the guy the leaders guy in particular you know just has so many tips about you know providing the best care and the best support for each other especially in these groups and just the hope that it gives and some of the quotes or the scriptures or, or whatever is used is just fabulous. And, and everybody that participates in these kinds of things, everybody's looking for hope, just quite frankly. Yep, exactly. Um, why don't we talk a, a little bit about you know what you've learned as you've traveled around the country speaking to sure. different caregiver groups? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the primary thing that I've learned is, is kind of what you mentioned right at the top of the show that uh, you love, and that is, you know, just hearing other people's stories. And I learned so much from that. And more than anything, I think I take away that people just want to connect. 
They want to cry. They want to hug. They want to listen. They want to learn. They want to share. And so I think sometimes, even if you have great friends, if you, if you are dealing with a person who has dementia, and you might have the best friend in the world. You've been friends since high school and all this stuff. Um, but unless they have a loved one with dementia, um, you know, they might want to listen to you and everything, but they don't sometimes really get it in the way that you would like them to. Mm-hmm. So when you go around to support groups where everybody's in the same boat, you know, everybody's parent or sibling or spouse is different, yet you can share in that same experience like we've already talked about today, the first time they don't remember your name, and then you hug and you can cry, you can do all these things because that person that you're talking to gets it. And so traveling around the country, you know, it's not unusual for people to, you know, as we're speaking, to, you know, or I'm speaking and, you know, and they're taking notes or they're sharing, um, you know, people aren't afraid to, you know, cry, to be very honest, to be authentic, to um, just share their frustration that they might not want to share at home, you know, because you don't want to appear like you're giving up or whatever, especially if sometimes I find that with people who have kids, younger kids. You don't want to seem like you're giving up on grandma or grandpa. But um, it's a safe place where you can just say whatever is on your mind and be understood. And that's that's what I've learned the most. It's just really about the connection. I never thought that uh, I would have, you know, that kind of impact with people. People write on the evaluations, you know, I felt, you know, I've been to other groups yet. I felt here you know, you made it safe. I felt like I could really share anything I wanted to say. And that's what you want to hear because why do people take the time to get in their car and come out to support group type events if if they can't share? And so I want to make every connection possible with as many people as I can. I love small groups especially because then you can really hear from each of the people too. Because I know a lot of speakers are trainers and training is pretty much all I do. And so in the training world, you know, huge groups, you know, you want to be a keynote speaker in front of all these people that you can't really see in the audience. You know, you can't see faces. <laughs> mm-hmm. And while that's cool, I guess, in a way, I think in this environment, when you're speaking with people about such a heartbreaking issue, you don't really want there to be a ton of people because you can't connect. So I love it when... You know, it's just maybe 20 people, and you can hold hands if you want while they're sharing their story or hug or or do whatever. And everybody feels like they're getting individual attention, and that's what I love the most. Yeah, I agree. I I think, and I can tell, you know, you can hear your passion in your voice uh, (laughs) about this. And that's infectious, and people want to share their stories then. And, uh, you know, I just love when they they come up and, and say, Wow, that's exactly what I needed to hear. You know, it's just it's just reaffirming, kind of what you 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 hope, um, right. but it it just makes such a big difference. And when we allow them a safe place to talk and share, um, they're enriching everybody in that audience. You know, right. and um, and I think sometimes they don't they don't know that. Um, how important their voice is to be heard and uh, the impact that they can have. Because, you know, what you and I do is nothing special. You know, it's, um, it, and I hope that, you know, when I get out there and, and speak, I hope that I inspire others to to feel comfortable to do that as well. Um, if it's on a one-on-one or if it's in a group, it doesn't make any difference because we cannot have too many voices. Um, that's to- that's the biggest thing. And I, um, sometimes when I sign the book, I put, you know, we are all in this together. And people are like, oh, but I mean, it's so true. You know, that whole thing of there's safety in numbers. And, you know, there's power in numbers, too. And so, you know, you really want people in their own community to, you know, you know sort of pick up the mantle and, and be willing to do that as well. Because some of the, you know, going out into the community, sometimes when I said I wanted to, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to erase some of the stigma. So I think sometimes, um, and I've talked to the folks in the African American Against Alzheimer's thing, too, and we've all kind of experienced the same thing, where, you know, like, oh, well, you know, we don't really talk about that, or we don't, that's not one of our issues. And it's clearly one of your issues. You know, if you're in the church, you know, for example, and, uh, you know, you're looking out into the audience, and the first three rows of people you clearly have some sort of, you know, memory 
issues going on. And so, you know, some audiences, uh, congregations are much willing to, you know, talk about it than others. But I wanted to make it okay to talk about it. It doesn't mean, I think it's the, the stigma sometimes is just really about us, the mental illness or whatever. And, you know, but if we just band together and work together and continue to share, you know, it gives everybody hope as opposed to trying to sweep it under the rug or pray it away or whatever. So uh, that and that's one of the the greatest things for me is to get out there and, and kind of see that work. Yeah, well, and I think too to get people to to really feel whatever their feelings are to give them that space that it's okay because sometimes we think we got to be a Stepford wife and we got to be strong and we can't show it and you know we have to do it all ourselves and you know we weren't put here on this earth to be alone. We were. Um, that's my belief that we should be living in community, and we're not truly living in community if we're not allowing others to help us. And you know, we all like to help other people, um, but we have a really hard time letting others help us. And so, I think yeah. we have to kind of flip that focus that you know what, what brings us joy brings other people joy, you know, mm-hmm. and a sense of purpose as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of specific needs that your mom has and, and how that has maybe changed on your journey? Maybe tell us even when she got diagnosed initially and, um, how long you've been on the journey. Sure. Yeah. We, um, she was diagnosed in 2006. So this was year 10 for us. And, you know, that's, same thing when you get diagnosed, you know, it's just really nonspecific. So, you know, they've never really given us a specific type or any, or anything. And for the first couple of years, you know, she was fairly stable. We did have one really significant incident where, um, you know, she was on the air set for a while and she didn't want to take it in the first place. And I wasn't trying to force her to do that. And then, but the, the neurologist was really pushing it. So she said she would try it, but she was one of those um, very few people apparently, who had the ultimate Aricep side effect, which was uh, it stopped her heart. And so we were at a doctor's office together, and if I hadn't been in the room with her, you know, she would not be alive um, today. But we were practicing her grocery list, and I was really working on her memory back then. And so she was repeating all the things that we were going to get at the grocery store, and all of a sudden she stopped talking. And her eyes were open, her mouth was open, like, wow. And I knew right away she wasn't breathing to do no CPR and all that, so I yelled for the doctor and all that. So they fixed that. So what that meant for us was that she couldn't, uh, since most of the drugs, especially back then, were all the same family that she couldn't take anything else, nor did she want to. And so we just kind of, you know, it just progressed. So, you know, in the beginning, you know, she really had very few needs. In 2009, I did have to, you know, move her to um, the group home that she's in now. And that was a chore. And like most other people, I waited too long to do so, um, the, the building, I saw her all the time, but the, the building management, you know, never let me know that, you know, she had gotten out a couple of times and couldn't find her way back and that kind of thing. So it was one of her neighbors that called me. And then, of course, I went there and, you know, had somebody stay with her until we, you know, found a, a good and safe place for her. So, um, you know, the needs, I think, you know, one of the questions I'm sure you get this a lot, too, is and when you go around, people want to know, you know, what are the resources we can get? And, and most people are looking for something, you know, financial. And for for our family, you know, <laughs> funny, we had signed, my mother made us sign a document to say that we would not uh, force her to live with us. She believed that um, once a child is married that you should let them, you know, live their life and all that and not infringe, be a meddling mother-in-law. On, as you see on TV, and, and so she wanted to live independently. So she believes she lives by herself, good for her. And so, um, you know, so then we just put the money toward, you know, we had to add money to her retirement check to, um, you know, have her stay in this group home. So I put her on a variety of, you know, lists for, you know, in the state of Maryland and where we are. She, we are fifth generation Washingtonians, but um, when we got time to put her somewhere else, the places uh, in Washington, D.C. itself, where she had lived for her entire life, were just out of our price range. So moving her to Maryland, where we lived, just right close to where we lived, um, that was the thing that we did. So, you know, I think the greatest struggle that most of us have is um, finding all the resources that we need, be it financial, be it um, someone to come into the residence to work with them, you know, exercise, those kinds of things. Fortunately, my mother's 
physical health is unbelievable. She doesn't even have arthritis, no high blood pressure, no high cholesterol, no diabetes, nothing, just uh, dementia. So I'm rare in a sense in that we don't need those kinds of resources where people come in and she can still do her favorite activity she did when she lived alone, which was Tai Chi. She can still do some of those moves and things. And so, you know, what I think most states are bogged down with is how to have, you know, enough funds to help people in the community do that. Because I, well, I start off probably most of my presentations by saying I have two fears about this disease. One, that I'm going to get it. And then two, that my mother will outlive my money. And that's such a fear. Because, you know, we were talking about when we started this conversation, we were talking about that huge responsibility of being your parent's parent. You know, she didn't run out of money taking care of me. So I'm like, oh, my God, you can't, you know, do that. So, you know, you see people our age trying to figure out how much longer they're going to have to work to, you know, care for their, you know, mom and all that. So, yeah, it's a huge concern. So the the greatest, I think, needs, you know, we have right now is just some assistance with, um, the cost of the rent or because a lot of these state programs that provide a subsidy um, to what their existing, um, you know, funds, their available funds are. So, I mean, those are the, you know, you know the basic needs. And I think the other change for us is that we just this year, um, probably seven months ago, got into the um, the full-time with the depends, so incontinence has you know, become you know, a big issue. But I think one of the saving graces for all of us out there, especially those of us who still work, is that um, you have so many resources that can be delivered you know, right to you. And so you know, we get the depends and the bed, uh, the bed liners and you know, other pads and all things that you need, and it comes right to the door, and you can change your order you know, every month, order more, order less, and, you know, it's just so convenient. And so I think so many things, when you, as your needs change in this disease, it's really, again, sharing. I got the website that I ordered, the, it's called Disposables Delivered, and I got that website from a person at a support group event. And so, you know, the more we share with what works for us and what does not work for us, um, the, then the better off we all are and the less stressed we are about this role that we're in. And so I think, you know, those are, you know, some of our current needs. Um, and then, you know, you're on these long waiting lists. When I was on the, what they call a Maryland waiver registry, I registered her for that in 2010 after I moved her to the group home. And just two weeks ago, she got off the waiting list and now actually on the registry list, six years on the waiting list. Oh and so now this registry, um, you know, they, they come out and assess you. They look at all your needs and what you have. And then, so I even asked the woman, do you think she'll be on this list, the, the actual list for a couple of years? She said, well, I hope not that long. Yeah, me too. So, you know, it's you know, good to get a sense of where you think you are on these different, you know, lines, long lines for services. So very interesting uh, journey. Well, and that's a an excellent point. You know, you can never be too prepared for stuff like yeah. this. You know, and and <laughs> as scary as it is to think that that's where you might be headed, you're better mm-hmm. off to be prepared for it than not. And that's um, and so really, really important. The other thing that I liked is you you mentioned about stress, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's so overlooked and undervalued the impact that stress has um, on us as a care partner. really is. Yeah. It's, it's huge, and you have to, and I think I use the Legos and other things, music, as, you know, the outlets, you know, for us. And um, I use a couple of the Alzheimer's, you know, music things, and, um, you know, when, when we're together, and then I use more of the spa-related, you know, music stations, you know, just before bed and those kind of things to just stop my mind from racing and actually get rest. And so I think, you know, I share all of those things, too. I do one of the, instead of just talking about the book, I also do presentations on, um, you know, kind of getting our joy back in a sense and, um, you know, making sure that we still have, you know, those times when we can, um, you know, get our spirit back and that kind of thing. So I do a variety of things around that 
topic as well. And then we get up and kind of run around the room, and we just people are like, oh, I haven't done this in so long. You know, just seeing the joy on people's faces. I have a coloring page that we use and markers on the table, and, and people just go crazy mm-hmm. because if we don't all do this together, I mean, who knows where we end up. And, you know, all the statistics right now are saying, you know, eight years is the typical time that your life is shortened, you know, when you're a caregiver. You're like, what? Eight years. I want my eight years back. So let's let's go out and have some fun and run around and, and that kind of stuff, you know, if that's going to help us. And so um, it, it gets everybody's attention when they, they figure out that their lifespan could be reduced significantly due to all the stress. So I try to really work on that. Yeah. Well, that's, that's wonderful. Um, can you tell us, now you recently lost your husband, and, and I, you know, my sympathy goes out to you and wrapping you in love and prayers, because that's a, that's a tough thing in and of itself. But how has that impacted, you know, your mom's care? Because now I, you're dealing with two major losses, and, and um, how, how are you coping? Uh, so it's been three months this week, and so, um, yeah, just a devastating thing. You, 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 would, you would have had to have known Tim. We were married almost 31 years, and uh, we missed it by six weeks or so. And um, he did so much for my mom. And, you know, I have to be honest, I'm, I'm just now, now that we're in month three, I'm just now realizing exactly how much he did. Like at the group home, who knew he was changing light bulbs and painting and, and doing some stuff? Who knew that? But he drove my mom everywhere. So one of the most just heartbreaking things I had to do was right after he died, like a couple of days after the funeral, I had to buy a new car because he took my mom everywhere. He had a Ford Expedition, and if you're familiar with that vehicle, you know, it has these running boards that come down. He had taught my mom to step and then grab for the little handle, and she could pull herself up. And, then, of course, he was helping her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had this little, you know, zippy Cadillac, low-to-the-ground, sporty car, you know, uh, it wasn't a two-seater, but it was really low, and my mother could not get in that car. She had forgotten how to turn and sit and turn your legs, and she had cried once. We tried to do that, and it was so frustrating. You know, how do you tell your parent how to sit? I'm trying to demonstrate. Oh, my God. It was the most frustrating thing ever. So because, you know, the way things go when someone dies, you know, while you're trying to get the estate together, um, I didn't drive his vehicle, so I rush out, and I go, thank God, to the dealership where he had bought a car, and I explained, and they all knew him, so, oh, my God, they were all devastated, so, of course, they bent over backwards to help me, so I get this car, new car, and my mom sits right in it, yay, and, I mean, just amazing, and the other thing, some of, one of the most powerful things that he did, because I do still work, mm-hmm. thank God, my mother's very, very health, uh, healthy, but she does have appointments, like, you know, doctor's appointments and things, like everybody else, or dentist. And so he would go to the group home, get her, drive her to the appointment. I would leave work, meet them at the appointment. He would wait for the appointment to be over. Then when it was over, he would take mom back to the group home. I would go directly back to work. So instead of having to take half a day or all day, in some cases, off from work, and then you're using up your leave and all that, I only had to take off like two hours, hour and a half sometimes. Unbelievable. And so now I'm, you know, just making up, you know, all of these, um, you know, things. I mean, how do you replace that? So, you know, I lost the love of my life, my best friend ever. And you could cry and, and scream and throw stuff, you know, and all the frustrations about this disease, and he'd be right there holding your hand. Mm-hmm. And oh, he just worshipped my mom. This is the most unbelievable. So one of the most beautiful things is that, you know, I didn't have to tell her he died. You know, she's not going to ask for him or anything. And I'm grateful for that because she just, I mean, they just worshipped each other. Years ago, when he was in the process of retiring from the police department, my mother fell off a bus and fractured her shoulder and had to do the shoulder replacement. And at the time, he had so much sick leave on the police department, he was just using it up before he retired. He took my mom three days a week to rehab, and they had so much fun. They'd go to lunch and go shopping at the rehab. They just had a blast. They did that for like six months. <laughs> My sister and I you know, didn't have to take time off from work. They just had a ball, and everybody said, oh, you know, you know, you and your mother have so much fun. She said, oh, you know, she's my mother-in-law. People are like, wow. They actually looked alike, too. So it was just amazing the things that he did. And I was never, you know, afraid if something happened to me. You know, he would always take care of my mom. Now I'm having to put everything in writing and setting specific money, you know, in my 401, 
you know, just for her care or something. I get hit by a bus tomorrow or something. All things I had not done. So I'm scrambling around trying to do everything in addition to trying to grieve. So it's like, oh, every moment is just different. Sometimes I just burst into tears. But I always remember that, you know, I still have to, you know, obviously take care of my mom. And, you know, I do that. I'm going to be 100% honest and say one of the things I did do, though, consciously, Right after Tim died, I probably didn't see my mother for, I would say, five or six days, and I go there almost every day. And I I didn't go see her because I needed my mother, you know, to comfort me because my husband died, a man that she loved and worshipped. And because I couldn't get that from her, I just couldn't go. Mm -hmm. That's probably the longest ever stretch of time I have gone not seeing my mom. And But I, I just, I couldn't. And so now it's just, you know, sitting down, writing down just all the things that I have to do that he used to do, pick up and picking up prescriptions. Before we started doing the delivery with the disposables delivery, he was at Costco getting the depends and this and that and this and that. And so I rarely had to do any of the running and jumping. All I had to do was spend time with her. Yeah. And so, oh, it is amazing. One of the things we've done is that this week, actually, we went – you know, I take my mom a lot of places anyway, but now we're doing the errands as we're going to, as opposed to just having fun like ice cream and, and stuff like that. So now, you know, on the way to go walking or, or other exercise or getting ice cream, we go to the CVS on the way and get the prescription sure. <laughs> on the way. Sure. You know, all the things that he used to do. So it's just a matter of making time for all those things. And, and so, wow, I'm just learning every day. Every day is different. Wow, that's uh, well, and it it is because we don't understand how much other people do until you got to walk in the shoes, and then, and then all of a sudden it's like holy mackerel, yeah, no. yeah, you don't realize how many tasks there are, you know, when you're right. working as a team, and and um, I so get when you couldn't go see your mom because I, I for me I didn't have a loss like that, but I ended up getting divorced, but I couldn't tell her because I knew that oh. that would just upset her. And yeah. there was no point because I couldn't comfort her. I couldn't rationalize. I couldn't right. do any of that stuff. And so, you know, there's those moments when you're just so used to being comforted and right. and that just can't happen. And, right. you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? Because uh, you do have to deal with it. And then it's another loss on top of whatever it is you're dealing with. It makes you realize, oh, my gosh, I don't have that anymore. Um, and how much you miss that. So, um, really, (laughs) yeah, it's a a massive, massive change. Um, is there, you know, if, if you had three tips to tell somebody who's, um, dealing with dementia, if it's somebody who's diagnosed or if it's a family uh, or friend care partner, what would that be? I think the first thing would be just, you know, just kind of live in every moment, and when you know, uh, my, you know, and just and just say enjoy it. I mean, even sometimes when the dementia person is being, you know, fussy or whatever. I mean, there's still some joy in the fact that they can still, you know, feel. And I always try to, you know, recognize that they still have an emotion and and all that, and some of that's still in there. So I really try to focus on, you know, one moment at a time, and mm-hmm. and I think that's one of the greatest things. And then. The second tip for sure would be, you know, make technology your friend because there's so many things online that we can get and use and most of you know, most of it is free that helps us on this journey. There's an app that I love, um, you know, called CareZone and you know, you can if you have a team like, you know, Tim and I had, um, you can, you know, set appointments and do all kinds of things. And, you know, take the person everywhere they need to go and not miss appointments. And then, though, the beauty of it is that you can share it with all your friends and family and without having to tell the story to 12 different people or 25 different people who mm-hmm. in the family who want to know what's going on. And so there's so many things out there. It saves you an hour of calling all these people. And, and so I think we need to really investigate some of the technology that is out there that will make us, you know, our lives on this journey, either if we have it or, you know, we're caring for someone so much easier, like the music ones, for example, and I, I know you um, write it a lot and, and about music and the impact on Alzheimer's, and um, that, for example, can 
can bring about so much calm in the car when the person's getting, you know, antsy or a lot of anxiety or whatever. And so, you know, I've tried to use every piece of technology I can to help with my mom. Loaded, I have a thousand pictures on my phone from 1929 to 1939 or 1940 that really keep my mom calm, you know, calm when she gets excited. And so, I try to use it, you know, every kind of way. And I think the last tip of the three would be simply to um, reach out when you need a friend. You know, go to these, you know, support groups, and if you don't want to get out, find some of these wonderful online ones as well. It doesn't have to be the Us Against Alzheimer's Facebook community. There are other ones as well that just, you know, say to someone, I just need somebody to listen or a friend, and people will answer you and comment in droves. You'll have more you know, tips and hugs, virtual hugs, than you ever thought possible. And so that's those are the things you have to ask for help, or you know, you end up in you know big trouble, uh, stress-wise. And so those are the three things that I'd say. Okay, well, that it, this has just been such a fun conversation, and I just love your energy and the work that you're doing. So, you know, please you. please keep that up and. I- and for um, for our listeners, you know, check out Us Against Alzheimer's. You know, sign up for their newsletter. You'll get wonderful information. And so many people are looking for updates on research. This is daily. You're, you'll get several little articles that you can go ahead and um, dig deeper into if you want, or if you just want the highlights, that's okay too. Um, along with their their networks that you can tap into, and they have great educational programs um, as well. So, um, you know, and if you're looking for a place to donate and not quite sure where to go, again, they're doing some really cool things and have really helped push, I think, Congress along in terms of of increasing uh, funds. Can you tell us, Loretta, what's the best uh, contact information for people to reach out to you at? Um, they can do either my um, website, which is um, LorettaVini.com, and then um, they can also, you know, email me at LWVini at AOL.com as well. So those are the two, you know, primary numbers. And then it has a, um, um, I think the website has the, the mailing address and everything too. So, and then when I speak, I usually always, um, you know, give out my number and people call, actually call me. So, okay. so I'm willing to talk to anybody pretty much any time. So it's okay. great. Great. And then um, for the book, can they get that on your website or is that available on Amazon? Again, the book is titled on, "Being My Mom's Amazon Mom." And, um, it's uh, like you said, "Being My Mom's Mom," and so it's available in book and Kindle format okay. as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for taking the time to be with us today, Loretta. Appreciate it thank so you much. For me. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. Thank you. And keep up all your great work as well. Appreciate yeah. it. Okay, I will do. Thank you. For those of you that are new to the Alive and Social Network, you might want to check out Rachel Perrin, who's a culinary director for Kowalski's Market, along with her producer and sidekick, Adam Lee. They um, each week are joined by fantastic foodtastic friends and colleagues that chat about seasonal foods, favorite foods, trending topics in nutrition, and everything yummy for your tummy. They have a... Uh, an episode called What's for Dinner Tonight. And their podcast is only 10 to 15 minutes, but it's a great idea um, to be able, or it's a great platform to be able to get ideas for assisting in dinner plans because sometimes we all struggle with that. You can also go to kowalskis.com and get a list of menu ideas. And that is K-O-W-A-L-S-K-I-S.com. If you haven't listened to our uh, recent shows, please check them out. We just had Ben Utech on, who is a Super Bowl champion, and he talked about his um, dealing with concussions and uh, CTE. Um, just a just a wonderful conversation. He's in a very positive place. He's got a young family, and um, you know, sports has changed his life, and he is now changing others, uh, showing hope and leadership. We also had a show on the um, with Deborah Schaus, Living in the Land of Dementia, which is her book. Um, we had a discussion about talking about um, kind of picking a dementia care community and how you do that. Our latest Dementia Chats was a fascinating conversation that you can get on our YouTube channel or just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. It's on our front page. It's also under Projects and initi- Initiatives. 
under the Dementia Chats uh, tab. But we talked about the need for change in terms of diagnosis and that doctors um, and their clinics need to get more support information out to individuals. And our panel of experts living with the disease um, told their own personal stories and had some great recommendations. Our next Dementia Chats will be on dementia and pets and then also the voting process, which is quite enlightening how that impacts people with dementia. Our last caring, um, conscious caring resources was with Norms McNamara over in the UK. And we talked everything about the Purple Angel to his new book about um, Louie body um, to a film that's coming out. Um, real interesting conversation there. We also have some upcoming um, screenings of the Hollywood film His Neighbor Phil, which are free in Hopkins, Minnesota at the high school. On October 30th, you can see that film at 2 p.m. I'll be down in Memphis. November 10th, you can um, get information on my homepage. And then also in Sa- at St. Therese in Woodbury, Minnesota on November 16th. Um, for blogs, I just want to point out a couple of them. Um, uh, George Seiler uh, wrote a beautiful poem um, called Ode to Annie, which reflected his loss of his lovely wife and um, how it impacted him. We also have an anonymous um article that talks about advocacy, and I think it's well worth uh, reading. So check that out as well. In the meantime, uh, keep in mind our tool that we use called Your Memory Chip. It teaches us to focus on our people safe, happy, and pain-free when they're living with dementia. Till next time, have a blessed week. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire, become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.